Well, good afternoon, church slash evening. Uh, please open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20, whole chapter, verses 1 through 18, not that long of a chapter. Uh, the title of the sermon is Faithful God, and because it's only 18 verses, we're actually going to read the text first. And so if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, and this is what the Word of God says. It says, From there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While he was staying in Gerar, Abraham said about his wife Sarah, She's my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die, because the woman you have taken, for she is a married woman. Excuse me. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, would you destroy a nation even though it's innocent? Didn't he himself say to me, she's my sister, and she herself said, he's my brother? I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. Now, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called his servants together, and personally told them all these things, and the men were terrified. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you've brought such enormous guilt on me and on my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Abimelech also asked Abraham, what made you do this? Abraham replied, I thought there is absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So when God had, so when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, look, I am giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of God. Let's uh, go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you tonight, and I pray that you would be with us as we study your word, as we uh, take a little bit deeper of a dive into Genesis chapter 20, where we see that you indeed are faithful, God. I pray that you'd give us all eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me preach your word and remove me as much as possible. And don't let my tiredness and fatigue from the hot day and, uh, and all that get in the way, Lord. But instead, it would just be your word going to, uh, to your people. We pray, Lord, that your people would be encouraged and convicted. We pray that those who don't know you would hear the gospel and be saved. And we just pray in everything that you get all the glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen. Please have a seat. So how many people here have ever failed God before? How many people here have fallen pretty hard with sin? How many here get discouraged with your sins? I know I do. 
You know, God calls us to live righteously. He saved us so that we could walk in the good deeds that he prepared in advance for us to do. So when we fall into sin, we sometimes start to wonder, like, is this it? Is God done with me? Have I now, you know, proven I'm not a believer? Am I even saved? And if I am saved, is this now the time where God's finally going to just let my sin wreck my life? And indeed, sometimes God will do that for the believer that's determined to hang on to sin. But for most of us, we don't want the sin. We don't want to hang on to it. We hate it. And it bugs us deeply that we mess up. Well, I have good news for you. And that good news is the point of the text. It's this. God is faithful even when his people are faithless. God is faithful even when his people are faithless. Our text will definitely prove that tonight. How so? Well, Moses shows us God's faithfulness in two actions in our text. He shows us God's faithfulness in two actions. First, God guards his promise. God guards his promise despite our sin. Okay, so the first action, God guards his promise despite our sin. And then second, God guards his covenant partners even when they fail him. So an easier way to remember it is first, God guards his promise. Second, God guards his person. He guards his promise. He guards his people, okay? And so that's what we're going to see in this text. Even as his people are determined to jeopardize his promise, he will protect the promise and he will protect his people. That is what God does. So as we continue our trek through Genesis, we have been walking through some dark moments at times. In fact, it's like we get these great moments and then we get these awful things as well. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, fantastic. Chapter 3 and 4, awful. You have the fall of man. You have uh, the coming of, of the curse of sin and death. You have Cain kill his brother. But then you get to chapter 5 and not so bad. We have the royal lineage that will one day get us to the Savior. But then Genesis 6 through 9, it's awful again. You have the flood. Humanity gets so bad, God has to wipe us out. Then chapter 10 is, eh, it's all right. You have the origin of the nations. Nothing bad there. But then chapter 11 is awful again. Humanity rebels and tries to build a tower in an attempt to declare its autonomy from God. It's almost as if they're trying to invade heaven. Well, then we get the call of Abraham in chapter 12. First half of chapter 12 is great. God makes the promise. It looks like he's now starting to end the curse. Abraham faithfully answers the call. But then the second half of chapter 12 is awful because they go down to Egypt and Abraham descends to a point of faithlessness and puts his wife in danger and makes her an adulteress. Chapter 13 then is good because Abraham repents, rededicates himself to God. Chapter 14 is a combination of good and bad. Abraham is bad because his foolish nephew Lot gets kidnapped because of bad life decisions. But it's good because Abraham goes all Aragorn in this scene. And with a small company, he lays waste to a large army and rescues his nephew. Chapter 15, super good. The highlight, the center of the whole Abraham section, because God reaffirms his promise and makes an official covenant with Abraham, a covenant that was unconditional. God alone passed through the animal pieces, that God makes the condition of the covenant entirely 100% on him. So, great moment. Then you turn the page and you get to chapter 16, and Abraham and his wife think they can help God out by bringing Hagar into the picture, by adding polygamy and surrogacy into the picture, and it just makes things worse. 
Chapter 17 then is good because God reaffirms the covenant, institutes circumcision for Abraham's descendants, and he tells Abe that the promise of a son will be fulfilled within one year. Now it's getting close. By this time next year, you will have a son. His name will be Isaac. And you're like, yes. And then you get to chapter 18, and we enter into a dark place again. And this one is real dark, and it lasts for three chapters. 18, 19, and 20 are supposed to be taken together. Now, upon a quick reading, you might not think that 20 has anything to do with 18 and 19, but I assure you it does. In chapter 18, if you remember, God shows up in the form of a man, and he reaffirms the promise that by this time next year, you're going to have a son. He also tells Abraham, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as all the cities of the Dead Sea Valley. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. And he's pretty much saying their sin is that bad. I'm going to destroy them. It's going to be total destruction. He speaks in a way that sounds as total as the flood. And it was. I mean, it wasn't global, but pretty much the cities he destroyed were completely destroyed. No survivors. Okay. And so Abraham then starts negotiating with God. He intercedes for the wicked. He says, you're not going to destroy the innocent with the wicked, are you? And really what Abraham was doing is he was looking to protect Lot. God then told Abraham, okay, I will not destroy the city uh, if there's people in it that are not guilty of Sodom's sins. Well, then we get to chapter 19, probably the darkest chapter we've read so far. Two angels enter Sodom. And we see pure evil. Lot, Abraham's nephew, shows hospitality to the angels because they look like men. But then the city's men show up and they try to gang rape Lot's guests. They're violent. They're unhospitable. They practice homosexuality. It's all of that. And that's why God destroys the city. And so it's time. Time for the destruction. And yet Lot hesitated. It's like, what is wrong with this guy? But because of God's mercy, the angels say enough's enough. They grab him. They grab his family. And out of mercy against his will, they pull him out of that city to save him. But the sad thing was his wife had a heart for Sodom. And so she looked back and she died because of it. She's one that Jesus talks about that places the hand on the plow, but looks back and therefore is not worthy of the kingdom of God. So she died. And then all the people, Sodom and Gomorrah and and the other cities, killed and you think, wow, pretty dark stuff, but it doesn't end there. What happens? Lot and his daughters retreat up to these caves in the mountains, and they get him so drunk he doesn't know what's going on. And over the course of two days, they both become pregnant by their own dad. That's where we've been at lately, okay? Pretty dark stuff. And you would hope that it takes a brighter turn. And I will tell you, chapter 20 is not as bad as chapter 19. But Abraham is going to mess up. He's going to mess up really bad here. In fact, he's going to commit the exact same sin here that he did back in chapter 12. But this time, the difference is God will immediately intervene. In chapter 12, he didn't. Here, God will immediately intervene because he refuses to let Abraham endanger the promise that God made to him. Abraham, you might be dumb right now with what you're doing, but I'm not going to let you thwart what I promised. Now, before we look closer... I just want to quickly show you why 18, 19, and 20 are all meant to be taken together. There's a lot of themes that cross all three chapters. For example, in all three chapters, you have vulnerable females who are surrendered to bad people to protect males. For example, Lot's daughters would be surrendered to protect the angels. Sarah, in this chapter, will be surrendered to protect Abraham. In these chapters, God threatens judgment and even brings judgment. Sodom is destroyed. Abimelech is threatened to be destroyed. And of course, his people 
are made infertile. They're barren. In chapter 18, Abraham says, you're not going to destroy the innocent, are you? In chapter 20, Abimelech says the same thing. You're not going to destroy the innocent, are you? Both 19 and 20 also deal with the behavior of a resident alien in a territory outside the boundaries of Israel. Sodom with Lot and Gerar with Abraham. Moses includes all these details and similarities so that we know these chapters go together. And so when we get to the next chapter, it'll be a little brighter. Isaac will be born. But uh, right now we got to get through this, this last, really just bad part of Abraham's experience. So with that said, let's take a look at the text. In verses 1 through 8, we see the first action of God here that shows him faithful even when we are faithless. And it's that God guards his promise against human sin that jeopardizes the promise. So let's take a look and see what Abraham does here to jeopardize the promise and what God does to protect the promise. So verse one, it gives us the setting. Abraham's gonna leave his cozy place at the Oaks of Mamre and he's gonna go deep south into the Negev. Look at the first part of verse one. It says, from there, Abraham traveled to the region of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur. Now listen, I know everybody here has the geography of ancient Israel memorized, so you could picture exactly what this means, right? If you can't, what's wrong with you? No, just kidding. Just kidding. Simply put, you got Jerusalem, and then south of Jerusalem, you got the Dead Sea, and then south of the Dead Sea, you got this giant desert called the Negev, and part of it is Israel, but part of it goes outside of Israel, goes all the way down to the Sinai region, which was Egypt. Part of it goes towards, it goes into Arabia, so it's a really big, hot, nasty desert, and so why Abraham goes there? We don't know. Now, in chapter 12, he goes to Egypt, and it tells us why. Moses says there was a famine in Israel, or Canaan. But there's no indication given here, so we don't know why he's down there. All we know is he goes down to this really hot area. And Pastor John and I learned talking to our tour guide for Israel, or tour setup, or whatever the person is, um, that in the Negev, it gets to 110 degrees in February. So think of the heat we have today. That's February there, and I don't know why Abraham's going there, but anyhow, this is where Abraham goes. Now, two areas are mentioned. You have Shur, which is not super deep south into the Negev. It's kind of when you first get there. And then you have Kadesh, which is way deep into the Negev. And what it tells us is Abraham was in between those two. So he's probably halfway deep into the Negev. Just felt like saying that. You might say, why is he telling us this? Because Moses went out of his way to tell us it's in between these two points. If Moses says it, I'm going to tell you what that means. Now, it tells us he's staying in the city of Gerar, which was a Philistine city. And this is the first mention of the Philistines after they're mentioned in chapter 10 in the table of the nations. So let me summarize the setting and then we'll move on. Abraham is outside of his home area. He is in foreign territory. We don't know why. But the fact that he is there and no one there knows him, this makes him vulnerable. So Abraham is in a vulnerable situation. So with that setting explained, now let's see how God has to guard his promise made to Abraham because Abraham is going to be dumb. Remember the promise. What is the promise? God said, by this time next year, Sarah will give birth to your son, the one that you have been waiting so patiently for. One year, buddy, you'll be holding Isaac. You'll be laughing with your son whose name laughter, because that's what Isaac means. 
Well, let's read the end of verse 1 and all of verse 2. It says, while he was staying at Gerar, Abraham said about his wife, Sarah, she's my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. Okay, so do you see the problem here? Do you see the problem? Abraham, I'm going to regenerate your 90-year-old wife's reproductive system so that you could get her pregnant. In less than a year, you'll be holding your son. Abraham's like, gee williker, thank you, God. Hey, Sarah, let's go on a long trip to a foreign place. And oh, by the way, please say you're my sister like you did in Egypt. What happened in Egypt? If you remember, Pharaoh, because he thought she was not married and was Abraham's sister, took her and added him to his harem, as, added her to his harem as a wife. And chapter 12 strongly implies they slept together. Abraham's lie made his wife an adulteress. Now, she was nearly 30 years younger then, but the fact that Abraham still insists on this ruse in her 90s means that Abraham thought she was still pretty enough that someone might try to kill him if they knew he was her husband. And by the way, there is a cultural reason for that. In all ancient Near Eastern societies, adultery was forbidden. And what I mean by that, because they defined adultery a little differently than what the Bible does, um, but pretty much what it meant is it was forbidden for a man to sleep with another man's wife. Okay, now if you're a king and you're married, you could sleep with as many single women as you want and you're not an adulterer. But if you sleep with a married man's wife, okay, you sleep with somebody's wife, well, now you're an adulterer. Even a king could get punished for that. So if you liked a married woman... One way to make her unmarried is to have an unfortunate accident happen to her husband. Abraham thought this was a real possibility. He thought they might suicide him. And so because of that, you know, he might not get hit by a train, but if he gets stampeded by a, a group of camels, same effect, right? And so he doesn't want to get stampeded by camels. And he's going to say, you know what, Sarah, we need to protect me here. Now, we don't know if his fears were warranted in Gerar, if they were like that. But the fact is this, Here, here's, here's my point in bringing this all up. His wife has to get pregnant any day now for God's promise to be fulfilled. And yet Abraham is putting her in a position where another man might sleep with her again. If that happens, that calls the entire promise into question. People would be much sooner to believe a younger king impregnated her than a 100-year-old man. Right, And so Isaac's lineage would forever be questioned. People might start calling me a Philistine rather than an Israelite because they would assume Abraham had no offspring. You call me a Philistine, we're going to have issues. But anyhow, this is what might be happening. Okay, If Abraham had relations with his wife and yet Abimelech had relations with her as well, there's no way to know who the baby's daddy is. Yeah, today you have Mari Povich, and he has foolish people go on his show every day. They live such morally questionable lives that the guy could say, well, she was with 10 other guys around the same time the baby was born. How do I know I'm the daddy? Well, you're baby daddy because the DNA test said you are. They didn't have DNA tests back then. So the whole thing would be called into question. So Abraham's request to Sarah jeopardizes the promise. This was really stupid. And let's be real, it was really evil. 
Men are supposed to protect women. That is why God made us typically bigger and stronger, and I know that's not in vogue to say that these days, but there's a reason why men are pretending to be women so they could dominate women's sports. We are bigger, we are stronger, we were made to be protectors. We are supposed to help shield their vulnerability. We're supposed to love our wives like Christ loved the church. How did Christ love her? He laid himself down for her. He sacrificed himself. What that means then is a husband will protect his wife's vulnerability even if it makes him vulnerable instead. Because that's ultimately what Christ did for us. Abraham's doing the exact opposite. He says, honey, I am vulnerable here because you're just so good looking. Can you help a brother out? After all, I am your half-brother. And here's the problem, though. By her helping him, yeah, it removes his vulnerability, but now it makes her entirely vulnerable. And that's the opposite of what a man is supposed to do. And the end of verse 2 shows her vulnerability. It ends on an ominous note. The end of verse 2 says, So King Abimelech of Gerar had Sarah brought to him. Now, I think it's obvious that this is a sad repetition of Abraham's sin back in chapter 12. And I think this tells us a lot about Abraham's weakness, that this happened twice. See, if you're honest with yourself, you know there are particular places where you are weak. And there's places where you are more prone to fall multiple times. For example, I'll just put myself out there. I know that I hate awkwardness, and sometimes I will allow myself into a difficult situation, even a compromising situation, if it helps me avoid awkwardness, because I hate being awkward. Now, so far, nothing big has happened because of it, but the potential is there. No matter how much I seem to grow in everything else in my life, when I'm in an awkward situation, it's like I'm a beginner all over again. Like all that I know just goes out the window because I don't want to be awkward. We all have our version of this. Some of us have multiple versions of this. In Abraham's case, it is clear that his number one sin is the fear of man. That is his sin. He fears people. And by the way, as a biblical counselor, this is something that I see in far too many Christians. Way too many people struggle with this. Their fear of what people think will get them to commit all sorts of sins. Well, I can't evangelize, which would be a sin, Because I don't want people to be mad at me or to yell at me. And I'm not going to speak up for those being bullied, those who can't speak up for themselves, because I don't want to be bullied. Or or I I can't not cuss when everybody else around me is cussing because they'll think I'm a prude. They'll think I'm a dork or I'm not cool. And and when they're gossiping, I gotta join in the gossip, or they're gonna think something's wrong with me. Now, of course, nobody says that. But that's exactly what they do. Why do they do it? Because they fear man. So rather than fear God, they fear man and they join with man in their sins because they care too much what man thinks. Many Christians today and in all times hide their faith when they're surrounded by a bunch of loudmouth cancel culture progressives. Oh, I don't want anybody here to know I'm a Christian. Otherwise, they're going to shout at me and they won't like me. That's fear of man. That is fear of man. A little later in the Sermon on the Mount, actually it's coming up as soon as I'm done with the Beatitudes, Jesus says, you don't cover a lamp with a basket. In in the same way we don't hide our Christianity from the world, it's supposed to be seen. Yet because of fear of man, too many people hide their faith. Now listen, we often look at Abraham here. You read it, and you're thinking, what a jerk. And I know I was thinking that in chapter 12. You know, what a jerk. And yes, indeed, he is a jerk. 
But how often have you been in a situation where you were genuinely close to being murdered? How many of you have ever been like, man, I almost got murdered this day? You know, to where you know what that stress and fear feels like. Now, I don't say that to justify Abraham. But what I am saying is it might just weaken somebody's resolve to be faithful if they really believe they're going to get killed. Abraham was probably rationalizing it that way. If I get killed, Sarah, someone else is going to take you as a wife anyway. So you're going to be with another man anyway. At least if we lie, I'm still alive. At some point, we get out of Gerar together, and we're still together. And Sarah, and if Sarah objected and said, but what about God's promise? Abraham could rationalize it and say, well, God can't keep the promise if I'm dead. So it's up to you to keep me alive. It's so easy for us to rationalize. So my point is, it is real easy in our sin, especially if the sin is the fear of man, it's easy for us to rationalize things in a way that's actually blasphemous. See, we're supposed to fear God, not man. Fear of man is a sin. If Abraham feared God instead, and if he had strong faith, he would say, you know what? Nothing can happen to me. I'm invincible right now. And that wouldn't be cocky. He would know that because he'd say, God promised me by this time next year, I will have a son. That means I have to be alive then. Nobody's going to kill me before then because God said at this time next year, I'm going to have a son. So whatever comes my way, God will get me through it. And I do remember when I messed up in Egypt last time, God sent plagues on them. So he is willing to intervene. I'm going to be fine. That's what Abraham should have thought. But fear of man so twisted his thinking, it's like he was a beginner all over again. Think about that. The first time Abraham fell in this way, it was before God made his covenant with him. It was pre-covenant Abraham. The second time it happens is after God has made the covenant and even renewed the covenant with him. One commentator put it this way. He says, quote, Abraham's failure in conjunction with the failure in chapter 12 shows that post-covenant Abraham, for all of his spiritual maturation, is still much like pre-covenant Abraham. Think about that. Post-covenant Abraham is very much like pre-covenant Abraham. And when I read that, I was picturing Vodi Bakum, who says, you're either saying ouch or amen. And I was saying both ouch and amen, because we all have the same problem. We become Christians. We know we have a new heart, and, and God gives us these new desires, and we grow in our knowledge. We have some pretty big victories that increase our confidence in our walk with God. And then wham! We do something that's just as bad as what we used to do before we were even saved. And then we start to question the whole thing. Am I really saved? Have I even grown at all? Or did I just imagine I was saved? Because why would I fall so hard? Why would I do things that the unsaved me did? It must mean I'm still unsaved. And we start to really rack our brain. And what I tell you is look no further than Abraham. Listen, we know Abraham's faith was real. He repented after chapter 12. Chapter 13 was beautiful, his repentance. He acted courageously in chapter 14, going all Aragorn, as I said. He then believed God in chapter 15, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If that faith was not real, he would not have been justified. But it says he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it is real fear. I mean, that much is seen later in chapter 17 when a 99-year-old man circumcises himself. Okay, so I'm just telling you, there was growth here. It was real. 
But when the fear of man was the issue, it's like all that went out the window and he was, he was a younger Abraham all over again, committing the exact same sin, pre and post covenant Abraham. And again, that's what happens to us in our weak spots. And that's why we should know what we're weak at so that we could be ready for this kind of thing. Well, here's the good news. God's purposes will come to pass by his sovereign grace, not our righteousness. This promise didn't depend on Abraham. Nothing can thwart God from fulfilling his promises, not even our sin. Paul puts it this way. 2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we're faithless, he's faithful, for, we, for he cannot deny himself. So think about that. As dark as Abraham's failure is, God is still going to shine gospel light in the midst of that darkness. If Abraham could commit the same sin post-covenant that he did pre-covenant, then what does that tell you about Genesis 15.6? You might be saying, remind me, what's Genesis 15.6? Oh, I don't know, the most important verse in Genesis. It's this, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Okay, the whole New Testament builds justification by faith alone off this verse. Okay, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So if Abraham could commit the same sin before this and after it, what does it tell you about this statement that God declared him righteous? It tells you that justification is imputation of righteousness rather than infusion of righteousness. The difference is imputation is you just get the credit of righteousness. Infusion is God would make you righteous. Clearly, Abraham was not made righteous. Look what he's doing. And yet, God still declares him righteous. It's righteousness that's credited to him from outside of himself. But for this righteousness, if there's going to be righteousness that will be credited to Abraham, it has to be a human righteousness. There has to be some sort of human righteousness where it comes from, right? And it can't be Abraham. Can't be the friend of God here because look at his sin. Can't be any other regular Israelite because they all have the same problem. Can't be us. We've got the same problem. So there's only one who can provide it. Jesus, the Christ, born of a virgin. He was sinless. He lived a sinless life. And as the God-man, he was able to earn a perfect human righteousness. That is what gets credited to our account when we believe. And then with the Holy Spirit within us, we grow and we live more and more in conformity with that righteousness, but we do not achieve perfection, not until we're resurrected with new, glorious, redeemed bodies. So this just proves way back in Genesis what Paul is later telling us in Romans and Galatians. We are justified by faith alone. We are declared righteous by Christ's righteousness, not our own. And that is encouraging. Why? Well, you might be down on yourself due to some of your sins. You might be questioning your own salvation. You may be wondering, how could a child of God sink so low? Well, listen up. God declared Abraham righteous by faith, and that declaration of righteousness was not taken away from him just because Abraham still struggled with sin. God still kept that declaration there. And the same is true of you. Just because you mess up doesn't mean that God's imputation of Jesus' righteousness now goes away from you. If God declares you righteous, you're righteous. The end time verdict has been declared. You're saved. And that's what's encouraging. Abraham is still saved even as he's doing this foolishness. 
Now, I think I've talked enough about that, so let's get back into the the flow of the narrative. God is going to immediately intervene. It wasn't necessary in Egypt because there was no promise that Sarah was going to have a baby within a year. But now we have that promise. So God wastes no time. Look at verse 3. It says, But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die because of the woman you have taken. For she is a married woman. Now, this is the first of four times in Genesis that God visits a foreigner or a Gentile in a dream. The other three will be Laban, the Egyptian cupbearer, and Pharaoh when Joseph is in in Egypt. In this case, the king is asleep, probably planning to go to Sarah in the morning for the first time. Uh, But God goes straight to his sleep and says, nope, it's not going to happen. In fact, imagine God coming to you in your sleep and the first thing he says is, I'm going to kill you, because that's in a sense what it says. You are about to die. I'm going to kill you. That woman is another man's wife. Well, that'll get anybody's attention. And so Abimelech is rightly afraid. But in verses 4 and 5, he's going to defend his integrity, which he does have integrity here. So here's what Moses tells us in verse 4 and 5. It says, now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord... Would you destroy a nation even though it's innocent? Sounding like Abraham there. Didn't he himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother? I did this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Now, as I said, what's interesting is this pagan is talking like Abraham did in chapter 18. Will you destroy the innocent? And he's interceding for himself like Abraham was interceding for Lot. He's interceding for himself and his nation, the rest of the Philistines. Philistines. He then rightly says, God, I had no idea. Both the man and the woman, they both said she was his sister. I didn't know. And just like God revealed to Abraham, he said, look, I'm not going to destroy the innocent uh, with the wicked. God's going to pretty much tell Abimelech the same here. I I won't destroy you for your innocence. In verse 6, we read this. It says, then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. I have also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I have not let you touch her. In other words, yes, I know you're innocent. That's why I'm here. If you weren't innocent, you'd already be dead, my guy. But you're not dead because I'm preventing you from committing this sin. But I know you didn't know the truth because I know my servants lied to you. And because of my servant's failure, I'm here to tell you what he would not tell you. That is his wife. I'm preventing you from touching her. In fact, if you touch her, you've sinned against me. And I find that interesting. He says, I have also kept you from sinning against me. Meaning if he would have touched her, God would have considered it a sin against him. Now the word touch here in the Hebrew, it's a, uh, it doesn't just mean like he touched her. This is the word that would be used to approach a woman for lovemaking. Abimelech had not gone to her for that yet. And so God is saying, I didn't give you the chance. I prevented you. There's a word for this. It's called grace. I prevented you from sinning against me. Now, of course, God's reason is not because of Abimelech's innocence. It's not like, hey, I'm going to save you because you're a swell guy. No, fallen man, even when he acts with integrity, is still guilty before God because of other sins. So God owes people nothing. Abimelech's declaration of innocence is a declaration of confidence in his own works. 
We know how God feels about that. He could care less. What this is really about is not Abimelech. Abimelech, it's about Abraham. Even though Abimelech, in this case, is living more righteously than Abraham, who's God's favor still on? It's on Abraham. God's favor's on Abraham. Abraham is the one that God made the promise to. Abraham is the one that God made the covenant with, and it was unconditional. Abraham's failures do not remove this covenant. And so that promise that God made about Isaac being born in a year, it was made in the context of this covenant. God has to keep his promise. So God is saying, I'm going to bless this guy. And if Abimelech's like, but he's a liar, Lord, God would be like, so? I chose him. That's all that matters. No one deserves any good from me because everybody has sinned. But if I want to choose someone and bless that person, I do not need your permission. I do not have to justify it to you. I don't have to explain away his failures or his sin to you, another sinner. My grace is the only consideration that matters. It's like what Paul says in Romans 9, I'll have mercy on whom I will. Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? This is really what it is. I mean, Abraham does not deserve God's grace, but God gives it nevertheless, and he does not have to justify it. Proof of all of this is what God says in verse 7. If you look at verse 7, God says this. He says, now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who are yours. What an astounding picture of grace, not to Abimelech, but to Abraham. Abimelech, you showed integrity in this case. And so I am ordering you to go to the guy who lied to you, and he will pray for you. Only if he prays for you, the guy who lied to you, only if he prays for you will I not kill you. Think about that. So return his wife. But guess what? If he returns the wife and Abraham doesn't pray for him, God will kill him. You have to go to Abraham. Abraham has to pray for you. Then I won't kill you. Now, it's interesting. Why? Why does Abraham have to pray? Well, God says, for he's a prophet. He's a prophet. And by the way, this is the first time the word prophet appears in the Bible. Abraham is God's prophet because he receives revelation from God and he represents God to others. He also intercedes for them like he did for Lot and like he will do by the end of the chapter for the Philistines. This is one more indication, and I really want you to think about this. This is one more indication from the Bible that salvation comes from the Jews. It's through Abraham and his seed that the nations will be blessed. Apart from Abraham, apart from his seed, the nations are not blessed. The nations don't come to God independently and have their righteousness declared. Abimelech tried that. No, they have to come through Abraham and his seed. This is why Isaiah refers to the nation of Israel as a light to the nations or the Gentiles. This is why Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that salvation is from the Jews in John chapter 4. Ultimately, Israel is the corporate seed that is personified in Jesus Christ, the individual seed. And it's through him and him alone that the nations will be saved. Nobody comes to God just on their own. It has to be through Christ. It is only through him, the seed of Abraham, the perfect Israelite, that anyone is saved. But even here with Abraham, God is showing the role of Abraham. He's showing the role of Israel, and he's proleptically using that to show us the ultimate role of the Messiah, Jesus. 
See, if you look at Abraham, even in the midst of his sin, the nations are still required to go to him for mediation. In this case, Abraham has to intercede for the Philistines. That's the only way they'll be spared. In later cases, it will be the prophets of Israel in the Old Testament interceding for friendly Gentiles. This points ultimately to Christ. He's the one who fulfills these types and shadows. He's the one who intercedes for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus, right? And there's a reason for that. Abraham, in our chapter, is God's conduit of grace. Going back to chapter 12, I will bless those who bless you. It's through you that the nations, or your seed, it's through your seed that the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham is God's conduit of grace. It's Abraham is God's means of blessing the nations here. Now, Jesus is the true and ultimate conduit. It's all through him, but we're seeing a small picture of it through Abraham. And listen, Jesus being the ultimate version of this also, as I preached this morning, extends it to us because blessed are the who? The peacemakers, his people, the church, which has redeemed a Jew and Gentile together. We are now the conduit of grace to the lost because we're the ones who tell them about Jesus. We're the ones who baptize them. We're the ones who teach them to obey all that he's commanded. Now, I say all this because Abraham paints a profound and progressively revealed picture of both the Messiah and the Messiah's redeemed people. So it's very interesting. Abraham was the sinner in this case, but God's like, you still got to go to him to get this right. You will not be saved from this calamity that is upon you apart from going to Abraham. Well, Abimelech got the memo. He understood it. Moses tells us this in verse 8. If you look at verse 8, it says, Early in the morning, Abimelech got up, called his servants together, and personally told them all these things. And the men were terrified. So Abimelech and his people believed what God said. And we will see in the next section, they respond as they're supposed to. So it's clear from verses 1 through 8 that God guards his promise against human sin that jeopardized it. Abraham, you did something that jeopardized it, but God intervenes right away to guard his promise. In the rest of the text, we're now going to see that God guards his covenant partners, even when they fail him. I wish I could say Abraham's sin is done. It only gets worse in the next 10 verses. So, but God is still with them. God protects his guy. Okay. So it's understandable after all of this that Abimelech is upset. Abraham's lie nearly cost him his life. And as we will see, God already has afflicted the nation with infertility until Abraham intercedes for them. We'll see that at the end of the chapter. So with this situation being what we know is going on, verses 9 and 10 make sense. Here's what Moses writes. He says, Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said to him, What have you done to us? How did I sin against you that you have brought such enormous guilt on me and my, on my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. Abimelech also asked Abraham, What made you do this? I read that. I'm like, man, what an indictment. Why would you do this, Abraham? There is enormous guilt on my kingdom. In fact, when Abimelech says, you have done things to me that should never be done, this is reminiscent of Paul rebuking the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 for tolerating a sin that even the pagans would be ashamed of. Meaning what Abraham did was low even by pagan standards. You've done what people just don't do. What's wrong with you, man? I mean, that's what Abimelech is saying. You just dealt with me in a way that no one thinks is right. And 
I could tell you, it is certainly embarrassing when unbelievers behave more righteously than believers. I think a pressing example in our day is the way sexual abuse is handled by a lot of churches. Listen, more people get sexually abused in this public school system than the church, but the difference is the public school system responds to it by calling the police right away. Oh, you say a teacher did this, we're going to let the police investigate it, and then the justice system takes action. But there's a lot of churches that operate on a lower standard. The accusation comes out on this, and the the, the church leader commits something similar to this, and the church tries to handle it in-house. Well, he says he's sorry, you have to forgive him, and you shouldn't have been so charming. And so then they start to blame the victim. And eventually they say, you know what, for the peace of the church, you perpetrator, just go to another church, and we'll forget this happens. Goes to another church, nobody knows what he did at this church, and then he does it again. And that's why the statistic is he has about 30 to 50 victims before somebody finally goes to the cops. And it, it's, it's been in newspapers and all that. This is a, a startling indictment, right? It makes the believers look at the church and say, you guys are fools. This is not how you protect the vulnerable in the school system we call the cops right away. You don't do that in the church? And you know what? They're right. Romans 13 tells us Caesar has the sword for a reason, to punish crime. That kind of stuff's a crime. So you let Caesar do his thing. We should be leagues ahead of the world, leagues ahead of the school system. But when we're not, that gives them the ability to say what Abimelech said. You have done things that just should not be done. And that's embarrassing. Now, Abraham should have been leagues ahead of Abimelech in how you deal with people, especially since Abraham is God's representative. But Abraham was not because fear of man made him sinfully irrational. So this unbeliever rightly rebukes him. And I wish at this point that Abraham would have just owned it. But as we keep reading... Abraham is going to go into Adam mode. If you think Adam handled his sin well, you're wrong. And Abraham is going to handle it actually identically. First, he's going to rationalize the sin. Then, when that doesn't work, he's going to blame shift. So let's first look at his rationalization. Look at verses 11 and 12. Moses writes this. He says, Abraham replied, I thought, there's absolutely no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Now, I'll break this down in a second, but let me just say when I am counseling people who are dead set on self-justifying their sinful actions, I always ask them this question. I say, fill in the blank. It is okay to disobey God and blow off his commands when? And there's nothing you could fill that blank in with, right? There's nothing you could ever say, oh yeah, it's okay for me to disobey God in this case. No, you can't fill in the blank. Well, if you say I nag because I'm being neglected, or I watch pornography because my wife is withholding from me, or I spend money and I'm in debt up to my neck because I deserve $40 worth of fraps every week because I work so hard, in each of those cases, you've just filled in the blank. It's okay for me to sin because of this. Again, nobody ever says that out loud, but when you ask the question this way, you show them they're doing exactly what Abraham did. They're filling in the blank, thinking they are justified in sinning. You are not justified in sinning. Okay, In these cases, people are saying they could blow off God because of these excuses. You can't. We should just own up to our sin and say, look, I sinned because I wanted to. It was either revenge or it was lust or it was entitlement, but in each case, it was a sin. Now, if I was Abraham's biblical counselor here, I would respond, oh, 
Okay, so it's okay to sin when you're in a place where others don't fear God? Is that what you're telling me? I see. So if you're around those who don't fear God, you're allowed to not fear God. Is that what you're saying? And then, of course, he'd be like, well, when you put it that way, and I'd be like, sorry, Abe, that doesn't cut it. And so Abraham then says, well, well, I wasn't really lying. She's my half-sister. So technically, I was telling the truth. And I would respond, oh, I see. So if I steal your fruit with the basket rather than my hand, and I say, well, I technically didn't steal it. The basket stole it. Come on, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. It's ludicrous. A half-truth is still a full lie, especially when the whole point of omitting half of the truth is meant to make the other person draw a false conclusion. That's what makes it a lie. Abraham left out that she was his wife precisely because he wanted to deceive people into thinking they weren't married. That's a lie because they are married. Now, of course, when people are in the midst of their rationalizing, they're just one step away from blame shifting because eventually somebody keeps saying, I don't buy it. I'm calling you out on this, right? And then when that happens, they will blame others. You think of Adam. He first rationalized. God's like, where are you, Adam? Well, I was hiding because I'm naked. Sounds rational, you know, but then wait a second. There's something that's missing. There's something that you are leaving out. The only way, Adam, you would see your nakedness is if you disobeyed and ate from the tree that I told you not to. Adam, why not just start with that? Why didn't he just say, I hid because I disobeyed you? Instead, he rationalized it. I'm naked. I can't just walk up to God in my birthday suit. You know, he's rationalizing rather than owning it. And so then once God asks more questions, Adam, then what does he do? He blames Eve, the woman, and he blames God. Abraham's going to do the same thing. He's going to blame his wife and he's going to blame God. It's, this shows that the, his lie about Sarah is not the only sin here. In fact, I think verse 13 is the worst verse of this entire chapter. Abraham says this. He says, so when God had me wander from my father's house, I said to her, show your loyalty to me wherever we go and say about me, he's my brother. And so where do I start with this? First, he says, when God had me wander. God's the one who put me in this position. God made me wander. Wandering made me vulnerable. So I then asked my wife to show loyalty to me by asking her to lie. And she listened to me. She, she listened to me. So she lied. Okay? Doesn't that sound like Adam? The woman. It's the woman. Here Abraham says, Sarah's just being loyal to me by lying. Well, then you look back to Adam. Adam then blamed God. He didn't just say it's the woman. He said it's the woman you gave me. Well, Abraham does the same thing. God had me wander. And what makes it worse is this verb, wander, is almost always a negative word. It usually is used to people who are lost, drunk, or morally confused. It's not normally just somebody who wanders. So it's as if he is blaming God for his moral failures and his moral wandering. And what makes this worse, this is what you cannot know in English, you would need Hebrew, is the verb had me wander is plural, which would literally render this as the gods caused me to wander from my father. So rather than him even saying God, Abraham means God, but he's accommodating his pagan host because he's afraid. And so instead of saying, God had me wander, he's saying, the gods had me wander. I'm going to talk the way you guys talk. So he's accommodating his polytheistic host, and he's speaking as if there's more than one God. 
This is the kind of thing that the fear of man leads to. It's just like weak believers, if they're even believers today, putting preferred pronouns in their bios and on their resume. Or weak believers saying that, well, I don't judge, you know, sexual deviancy, that love is love, man. Or, or they're just telling the world what they want to hear. That's what Abraham's saying. Instead of saying, he did, you know, the gods had me do this. No. Okay? When, when, the, when Christians today, a lot of them, are confronted with the exclusivity of Christ, and the world says, who are you to say there's only one right way? How do people usually respond? Do they respond with my answer I gave in my conclusion this morning in the sermon? No. Usually what they'll say is, well, this is my truth, right? It's my truth. It works for me. I'm not saying this has to be true for everyone, man. I do me, you do you. And so then it gets them off the hook, they think, because they're talking now in the world's lingo. My point is the fear of man will get people to commit blasphemy like Abraham did here. It will get people to downplay the truth. Imagine giving those kinds of answers and yet it still doesn't satisfy the cancel culture and so you still get fired and then what happens? People, they start blaming God for it, which is what Abraham did here. It's just pathetic, absolutely pathetic. Abraham is not showing integrity even if the pagan was showing way more integrity. Well, the pagan knows by this point that God's judgment being reversed does not depend on the integrity of God's servant. God's servant has no integrity in this case. Instead, this all depends on the integrity of God's word. God said, give the wife back. He'll pray. You'll be all right. That's all Abimelech needs to know. He can't trust Abraham. Abraham's proved himself a fool here. But God's word is trustworthy. And so Abimelech is going to follow that. Look at verses 14 through 16. It says, Then Abimelech took flocks and herds and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife Sarah to him. Abimelech said, Look, my land is before you. Settle wherever you want. And he said to Sarah, Look, I'm giving your brother 1,000 pieces of silver. It is a verification of your honor to all who are with you. You are fully vindicated. Now, there's quite a few important details here. If you go back to chapter 12, after the same kind of thing happened, Pharaoh said, Abraham, you need to get out of here. He sent him out of the land of Egypt. Abimelech does the opposite. He's like, my whole country is before you. He invites him to stay anywhere in the country. Why would Abimelech do that? It's because he understood from his conversation with God that God blesses those who bless Abraham and he curses those who curse Abraham. Exactly what God promised back to Abraham at the beginning when he called him. So Abimelech knows this guy has done to me what should not be done. But having this guy in my land with the blessings of his powerful God, me hooking this guy up means that God might hook me up. It only helps our kingdom. And I have to say, I'm impressed with Abimelech. He might be a pagan, but he's a pretty wise ruler here. Now, the second detail is Abimelech gave the normal amount mentioned in other ancient Near Eastern documents, which was 1,000 pieces of silver. This isn't something that Genesis is just making up. In fact, there's a number of ancient documents from the time that say if you take another man's wife by accident because you didn't know she was married, you can show your innocence and her purity by paying 1,000 silver pieces. So this detail lets the whole world know that back then, this is certified. Abimelech saying, I never touched this woman. I am not Isaac's father. When Isaac gets born, Abraham could say, look, thousand pieces of silver in front of witnesses prove that this is my child. 
You know, what's interesting is in the intertestamental period, because I remember when I took my second temple class, I was reading some stuff, and there were certain anti-Semites in Egypt, specifically in Alexandria, during that time that tried to say Isaac was just the bastard of Abimelech, that the Jews are not really descended from a miracle birth from Abraham, that Abraham didn't have a kid, that we're all descended from Abimelech. And so just to let you know, people have tried to make that argument throughout history, but the details of this text strike it down. Moses gives us the principle of two witnesses, right? Earlier in the chapter, in the first eight verses, Abimelech says, I didn't touch her. God says, I know you didn't touch her. I prevented you from touching her. And now in front of everybody, Abimelech's like, here's a thousand pieces of silver. I didn't touch her. This is everything you have to do back then to say Sarah is undefiled. So again, these details matter. And so when you're reading the text, it's important to ask yourself, well, why are these here? Why, is it, why does Moses go out of his way to tell us this? It's to let us know in the next chapter when Isaac is born, he is Abraham's baby. Now, the third thing from that verse, it's only by the grace of God does it make sense that Abraham sins and yet God makes him richer. It tells us Abimelech gives him herds, flocks, and slaves. So Abraham shows up, does this guy wrong, gets this guy in trouble, and then when it's all done, this guy makes Abraham even richer than he already is. Did Abraham deserve this? No. But that's why it's grace. I, look, I know God has blessed me more times than I can even count, even when I don't deserve it. And she'll probably get mad at me for saying this, but sometimes my wife gets just angry that why does God keep, you know, anyway, just kidding. But uh, sometimes I know there's certain times in my life where I'm not being as good as I should, but God still takes care of me, still blesses me. And I think if you look at your lives and think about it, you're going to say, you know what? There are times where I should have got a lot worse, and yet God's favor was still upon me. And I just know it's been the story of my life since I've been a believer. My parents have seen it. My brothers have seen it. And um, it's grace because I don't deserve it. And Abraham didn't deserve it. But God just hooks him up here. Why? Because Abraham's God's covenant partner. It's that simple. With Sarah's purity proven, The text then ends by Abraham fulfilling what God said he would. God said, he's a prophet, he will intercede, and I will spare you. And it doesn't matter that Abimelech gave Sarah back and gave all the silver and all those other goods. Until God's covenant partner prayed, the healing would not come. But this happens, verses 17 and 18. If you look at it, it says, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female slaves so that they could bear children. For the Lord had completely closed all the wombs in Abimelech's household on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Now, of course, this detail is intentional. By God making them all infertile, it shows that Abimelech could not have been the father because they were sterile until Sarah was given back to Abraham. So you have God saying he didn't touch her. You have Abimelech saying he didn't touch her. You have a thousand pieces of silver saying he didn't touch her. And you had God strike all their reproductive abilities so that it would be impossible. Look how far God goes to protect his promise. And so the promises God has made to save us He's going to fulfill them. Nothing is going to stop him from fulfilling his promise. And by the way, all of this demonstrates what I said the second action of the text from God is, that he guards his covenant partners even when they fail him. Abraham failed many different ways here because of the fear of man. Yet God 
put the fear of God into Abimelech so that he would not touch Sarah, so that he would not retaliate against Abraham. Instead, Abimelech would comply and he would wait for Abraham to pray. He would show everybody that Sarah is undefiled. Additionally, God put a severe curse on them with infertility to protect the integrity of his promise. And even though Abraham did not deserve to have God listen to his prayer, as soon as he prays, God listens and gives grace to Abimelech and his people. This is God guarding his guy. So he guards the promise and he guards his person. He guards Abraham. This is just what God does. He guards his guy even though his guy doesn't deserve it. And on top of that, God has Abraham walk away with more than he arrived with. It's astounding. But this is our God. This is our God. So what can we say about all of this? Well, it makes me think of what the Psalms say and what Paul says. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. But if this text does not convince you that none of us deserve God to be for us, then you miss the point. God's for us, but we don't deserve him to be for us. We don't deserve it. That's why it's grace. Grace is unmerited favor. God isn't for us because we're worthy. He's for us because he loves us despite our unworthiness. And he loves us so much that he sent Jesus Christ to earn the righteousness required for salvation and to pay the penalty required for damnation. By doing that, God made a way to save us through Christ. We have the credit of his righteousness. We have our penalty paid so that we would never be damned. Thus, God is for us. And because he is for us, God is faithful even when we are faithless. Now, that does not give you an excuse or me an excuse to be faithless. God disciplines us, sometimes severely, if we're going to double down on sin. God gives us everything we need to continually grow and be more and more like Jesus. But God also gives us passages like this to remind us that when we stumble and we stumble hard, he's still for us. He's always for us. What an amazing God we have. Now, if there's any unbelievers, I hope that you're impressed with our amazing God. And if you think, gosh, this is so unfair. Why would God favor Abraham? Well, listen, nobody deserves to be favored. Abimelech's a sinner. You're a sinner. You've lied, you've stolen, you've blasphemed, you've dishonored your parents, you've lusted in your heart, you've murdered in your heart. By God's standard, you deserve to be condemned just like anybody else. So if God's going to save anybody, it's by grace. That's what's astounding with this. And so he makes the offer of grace available to you. If you turn from your sins and believe on Jesus with all your heart, you'll be saved. You'll be like Abraham. You'll be his covenant partner. And God will guard his promises about you, and he'll guard you. And so with that... What I call on you, if there's any unbelievers here, just turn from your sins, believe on Jesus. You could do this while we're praying. And then if you do, come talk to me after, and I'll gladly walk you through, you know, what this all means. But with that being said, we're going to pray, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Well, we're going to sing one more song, take the Lord's Supper, and then uh, have a benediction and be dismissed. So let's uh, go to the Lord. God, we just thank you so much that...